Several years ago, our college ministry called College Connection began a weekly tradition of closing their Sunday evening gatherings by singing a cappella, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him all creatures here below, praise Him above ye heavenly hosts, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, complete with the amen, I might add in stunning harmony. We have lots of music majors in our church for whatever reason. The truth is, well, they can sing. Um, You may know that song as simply the doxology. Um, It was written uh, by Thomas Ken in 1674, which makes it about 350 years old. It's amazing our college group sings it every week. It's an amazing work, but it has recently gone through some revisions. I was doing some research this week, didn't know this, thought I'd share it with you. It has nothing to do with my sermon, but it's interesting. Some updates to include gender-neutral language, like in the PCUSA hymn book, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise God, all creatures here below, praise God above ye heavenly host. Do you see the difference? It's subtle, but the new version eliminates the male pronouns. God's preferred pronouns are, or or he he doesn't have preferred pronouns. And I know what some of you are thinking. God is spirit. He is neither male nor female. And yet, the scripture does refer to him in the masculine as God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, you'll notice up there, the last line in the updated hymn is not praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but uh, praise triune God whom we adore. For what it is worth, I, I, I once counted... The farewell discourse given by Jesus, which promises um, the coming of the Holy Spirit, um, I I counted because I wanted to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is not an it. it. He is a person. He's referred to in the farewell discourse some 35 times with the male pronouns, he, him, or his. Um, It's not chauvinistic. In the scripture, God is he. And I'm not aware that God submits to humanity's idea of gender fluidity. I'm I'm not suggesting he is male. I am suggesting that he has revealed himself as he, Father, Son, and Spirit. Again, no extra charge for that. Just threw that again. So the title of the song is the doxology. But what is a doxology? It comes from two Greek words, doxa and logos, a word or saying of glory. It's a word ascribing glory. Now, sometimes we may consider a doxology to be a praise, and it certainly is that. And and perhaps we should, some would perhaps suggest that we do, we should reserve that word praise only for God, but we use it in all kinds of different ways, right? Um, Think about it. We may praise our kids for hitting a home run or scoring a touchdown, or or a soccer goal. We might even praise them for getting all A's on their report cards. Now, this is also gender-specific, because for some, we have to praise them, him, for all C's. When they're in grade school, good comments, again, gender-specific, in the behavior section may earn praise. Um, I usually got the A's, but never the good comments about behavior. I went to grade school. I know that comes as a shock. Um, I went to grade school uh, back when you were still allowed to give spankings. Yes, I received several. 
And I can remember two specifically. They, they, let us, they were getting ready to let us go outside, I think, to catch the bus. And it snowed. And uh, they said, no, no snowball fights. That's like sick them to a dog. <laughs> and uh, yes, uh, I threw a snowball or two and got. Expect another time, I remember specifically, they were letting us out for recess. And they told us, now listen, there's a new slide in the playground. It's just been cemented in. And the, um, the slide is... Uh, I mean, the cement is still wet. They even had tape across it, like, that's going to stop us. I was the first one down that slide. <laughs> it hurt, but it was worth it. <laughs> yes, I needed to be saved, the little sinner that I was. So uh, anyway, we use the word praise in a number of different contexts, but stop and think about it. A doxology, a word expressing glory, well, that is rightly reserved for God alone. We don't normally give or sing a doxology to anyone but God. In fact, there are several doxologies through the Scripture. Consider uh, just these three in the New Testament uh, at the end of Romans, chapter 16. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. And then in the middle of a book, Ephesians chapter 3, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. That's the part we like to really concentrate on because it's about us. But look, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, the end, but, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. There, there, there are others, but let me just read those three, and, and we should notice a couple of things. First, doxologies may come at the end of the book. In fact, they often do, but sometimes they might come in the middle, as in Ephesians chapter 3, to emphasize a point. Maybe the author is so overcome with God's goodness that he breaks into praise, into doxology. Can you imagine doing that in your life? They can even come at the beginning of a letter, as in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul has just written about how the gospel is even for the worst of sinners who throw snowballs, or like Paul. He's overwhelmed with that gospel truth, and he writes, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only, don't miss that, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So the typical doxology uh, is, again, reserved only for God, but it also, did you notice, it, it, it regularly magnifies and extols the fact that there is only one God. These doxologies typically have four parts. First is the addressee, again, God, as in to God. Uh, second, the doxology ascribes glory or honor, usually in a variety of different terms, as in the one we're getting ready to look at. Third, the extent or the duration of the honor is expressed. And, and finally, fourth, is an invitation for the hearers to respond to this honor, usually with a hearty amen. amen. Thank you. There was one or two. That was your opportunity. You missed it. So a doxology could be as simple as Romans chapter 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. 
To him, listen, here it is, the four parts. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That might be a good way to begin or to end every day or to live throughout the day with doxology in, in mind. Live your life in doxology. God, to you, the glory in my life today and forever. Amen. It brings us to our text today, the last two verses finally. I know what you're thinking. The last two verses of the book of Jude, which means we finished Jude, turn the page in the next revelation, whatever. This week, look at Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Notice the, the addressee to him who is able to keep us, the glory and honor ascribed to him, expanded in verse 25. Glory and majesty and dominion and authority. The extent of the honor is, is most broad in Jude, is before all time. It is now and it is forever. And finally, Jude ends with the customary amen, calling us the hearers to affirm the truth of this doxology. So let's make that our outline. It's pretty simple. The address, the honor ascribed, the extent, and then the affirmation. Now, if you have been with us, you know that Jude has been a rather challenging book. We know that he wanted to write to us about our common salvation, the salvation that we share uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we, we found that some false believers who were also false shepherds, they were false um, teachers, they had infiltrated the church, bringing with them their wicked behaviors supported by their wicked um, uh, teaching. I'm not going to get much into that other than to remind us that this is alive and well in the so-called church today, the progressive church. The progressive church has progressed beyond the antiquated teachings, you see, of Christian history. Churches, indeed entire denominations, are rejecting the inspiration and enduring authority of Scripture because, well, we don't like it. Scripture calls sin, sin, and condemns ungodly, immoral lifestyles. In fact, I would suggest that most of those progressive churches would not teach Jude. <laughs> Why would they? So they reject the inerrancy and the veracity or the truthfulness of Scripture and suggest that we are free to live however we want. After all, we have been set free and there is freedom to, to, to pursue our, our, our choice of, of lifestyle. After all, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times, God wants us to be happy, right? This is the way that God made me. Further, that which the Bible um, has called sin is, is not sin or no longer sin because we're smarter, right? We're enlightened. We've progressed. About the only thing 
that really matters in this so-called progressive church is equality and social justice, however they define equality and social justice. To be sure, the Bible speaks against things like racism and inequalities, and it does promote things like the care of orphans and widows. Yes, it, it does that. It is a good thing to be committed to providing social care for all people, to include those often overlooked, to include the marginalized. It is, after all, a way to share the love of Jesus Christ tangibly, earning the right to share the hope of Jesus Christ through the gospel verbally. Don't miss what I just said. We are good to those around us to earn the right. We love them in Jesus' name to earn the right to be able to share the gospel verbally. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. No one is going to become a Christian because you're a good person. They're going to become a Christian because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This movement we see in the progressive church denies things like the authority of Scripture. It certainly dismisses things that I don't like, like the death and resurrection of Jesus. Can you believe that? He didn't come to die for sinners. No, He was a martyr. He came rather to live an exemplary life, to be emulated, to set an example of, of love and care for our neighbors. Yes, He was good to us, and yes, we can follow Him as an example, but He came to die for sin. Unless, of course, you deny sin. Any judgment is denied and any sin is permitted. All that to say, this book is most appropriate for the Christian church today. False teachers and immoral, ungodly unbelievers abound in the church and justify their actions. So Jude has been rather tough. We ended the last section in verses 17 to 23, reviewing the prophecy of the apostles that in the last days, scoffers, mockers will come following their own ungodly lusts. But you, not, not you, beloved, you build yourselves up in your most holy faith. That's an intentional, that's intentional wording. You see, it's a holy faith that's to produce holiness. Praying in the Holy Spirit, that is, empowered by, guided by the Holy Spirit, waiting anxiously for the return of our Christ. And all the while, he had to, he had to say this, all the while, we keep ourselves in the love of God, who, which sounds a bit daunting. Further, some in the church, in Jude's day, our day, true believers in the church, or at least professing believers, may have been adversely affected by these false believers, these false teachers. Again, not only in Jude's day, but in our own. After all, this, it sounds so enticing, doesn't it? You mean, I, I really can use Jesus as a fire escape from, from hell and live however I want? No, Jude says. These teachers are hidden reefs. Caring only, shepherding only themselves. They're clouds without water, autumn trees without fruit. In other words, they, they show up and they make empty promises upon which they do not deliver. They're like wild waves of the sea churning up their own shame. For whom blackest darkness is reserved forever. That sounds so judgmental. No, that's Bible. Don't mistake it. Judgment is coming. I don't say that with any joy or relish, but judgment is coming. 
And some in the church had given them an ear. And they were in danger of apostasy. And so we are to be on the lookout for one another. We are to hold one another accountable as we make this community trip to heaven. Uh, On some who are doubting, wondering whether or not we have truth, we have mercy. And we graciously and gently call them back. For others, it's much more serious. We save them, snatching them as from the fire. Time and eternity is of the essence. We don't turn a blind eye. All the while, we show mercy with fear, hating the garment that is polluted by flesh. As we get close to those living lifestyles of sin, we're careful because we don't want to be sucked in. And all of that has perhaps left you trembling, maybe rightly fearful. I mean, what is this? I'm supposed to keep myself in the love of God? What if I don't? What if I fail? What if I mess up? Now to him... Who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy? Jude ends his letter with words of greatest confidence. One author writes, the hope that pervades the doxology is astounding in light of the grave situation that Jude faced as he tried to extract the church from the jaws of the heretics. In the end, He turns his eyes uh, to God, knowing that God is the one who will protect them and purify them so that they will, in the final day, be overwhelmed with joy. There is coming a day, through all the failures of life as we pursue Christ, there is coming a day when you will stand before him blameless and with great joy. I don't know if there's anybody needs to hear that this morning. I do. He's telling us that those who truly belong to Christ will not capitulate. Your faithfulness faithfulness to the end is not due to your own ability, your own inner strength. It is God who keeps his own from falling away. He will keep you. You see, I suggested a couple weeks ago that he has given us a great balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And he has done it cleverly using the word keep or kept throughout the book. Consider, for example, the very first verse. To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We made a big deal about that. We are the called, we are the, uh, the beloved, and we are kept. Kept as a divine passive. This is not something that we do. It's something that God does for us. He keeps us for for Christ. We say, hallelujah. Interesting, then, he uses that same word, keep, twice in verse 6. Speaking of the fallen angels. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, that is their place. He has kept, there it is again, in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Used negatively there, but with the same eternal assurance. Don't miss that. With the same eternal assurance, they did not keep themselves where they belonged, and so God is keeping them in bonds for judgment. You can count on it. Then verse 21, keep keep yourselves in the love of God. 
Only now the word is not in the passive. It's, it's an active imperative. It's a command. Do this. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Does that make you feel warm and fuzzy? Does that make you feel good? Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's hard. So which one is it? Am I loved by God and kept for Jesus? Or do I keep myself in the love of God? Yes. Both are true. Well, my brothers and sisters, don't be daunted. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't be doubting. Now, to him who is able to keep you. It's a different word, but it's a synonym. Um, he has the power. He has the ability to keep you. It speaks of God's ability to protect and to preserve us. Yes, there is human responsibility to follow hard after Christ. Hold fast onto Jesus. Say no to sin and its enticements. But all the while, know that God is keeping, protecting, and preserving us. In fact, Jesus prayed that for us in John chapter 17. It's incredible to think that Jesus prayed for you with these words in John 17. Holy Father, keep them. There's the word. Keep them in or by your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He is able to keep us from stumbling. From apostasy is the idea. This is not a promise of sinless perfection, although by the filling and, uh, and dwelling of the Holy Spirit that we heard well about last week, we do have the power right now to say no to sin, and we should because we love Jesus. But here, he is able to keep us from stumbling, from falling away from the faith. I'm saying that to you this morning. God is keeping you secure. Yes, there is human responsibility to follow hard after Christ, to say no to sin and its enticements. But all the while, God is keeping, protecting, and preserving us. All the while, keep us from apostasy. Keep us from stumbling. We can remain faithful despite our frailties and our failures. Now, when Jude says God is able, it, he is not just speaking of ability, but he is speaking of promise. What do I mean? One writes, when Jude spoke of God's ability to keep believers from falling, he did not merely mean that believers might be kept from falling. He's able to do it, might or might not. No, the idea is that God will keep them from falling by his grace. It's a promise to you. And further, he is able to make us stand. That, we're supposed to notice that. There's, a, there's this intentional contrast. The opposite of stumbling and following. He makes us stand in the presence of his glory, glory, blameless with great joy. Please notice, God makes us stand blameless. Do you feel blameless right now? He makes us forgiven. He makes us cleansed. He makes us holy by grace through faith and the finished work of Christ so that we will one day stand blameless. We will remain faithful. We will not fall. We will stand in the last day and in the judgment to come. Incredibly unbelievable. We will be judged blameless. Now that word could be translated 
without blemish or without defect or without fault. And we're reminded of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, which were required, remember, to be without defect, without blemish. They were required to be perfect. Further, we are reminded of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God in Hebrews chapter 9, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, if, if, if the blood of animals can do that, how much more? With the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish. Same word. Don't miss it. Same word. Offered himself without blemish to God. How much more will he cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you understand what Jude is actually saying here? God will cause you to stand in his presence without blemish, without defect, blameless. The same word used of Christ and his sacrifice because of the sacrifice of Christ applied to you. That's unbelievable. It's, in, it's incredible. First Peter says it this way, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work and that should cause our knees to knock together, conduct yourselves in fear. Yeah, no, duh. During the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as, a, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, same words, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world and has appeared in these last times for, the, for your sake, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who uh, raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. This has been God's intent all along. He sent his blameless son the Lamb of God, to take your sin so that you would be blameless. See the same idea in Ephesians 1 where God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless, there's the word, before him. Later in Ephesians 5, Christ's purpose is to present himself to himself, the church, in all of her glory. Think of beautiful white dress having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's, in God, that's God's intent for you. Jude actually says, we will stand in the presence of his glory. God enables us by the work of his son and the filling of the spirit to stand in the presence of his glory. That is stunning. This Friday in my personal devotional Bible reading, I read Exodus 32, following 33-34. There Moses was in the presence of the Lord after Israel's terrible sin. Remember, he had gone up was at the top of the mountain for 40 days, receiving the law of God, the tablets of stone engraved with God's finger, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, came down to find that they had crafted and were worshiping the golden calf. You read of that terrible sin, fashioning a golden calf to which they sacrificed burnt offerings intended for God. And this is they, they got up to play, they partied, no doubt with immorality. It is breath 
taking, not in a good way. Even Friday, it hit me in the pit of my stomach. How, how could they do that to this God, the only God, the one who had just delivered them some weeks or months before? God, as a result, was prepared to destroy them and start over with Moses. Remember that? Moses interceded for them. Some sense a type of Christ. He reminded God of his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he had promised that he would make them a great nation. And if God destroyed them now, his name, his character, his word would be suspect, would come under suspicion. The Egyptians and the surrounding nations would hear. God only brought them out of Egypt to destroy them. He's unable to fulfill his promises to them. So God relented. Don't read too much into that. He knew what he was doing. God relented and Moses further pleaded with God to go with them into the land. You see, when God relented, he said, fine, you guys go by yourselves. And he said, we can't go by ourselves. If you don't go with us, we can't do it. You know that's true for you too, by the way. God said, I'll go with you. And Moses responded, I pray you, show me your glory. You know the story. God said, I, I can't. I can't, you can't see my glory. I'll place you in the cleft of a rock. I'll cover you with my hand. I'll pass by with all of my glory, but you, you can't see my face. I'll let you see my backside, but you can't see my face. If you see me, you will die. And here Jude actually says, that there is coming a day when we will stand before the presence of the glory of God. What? Blameless and with great joy. What's the difference? Finished work of Christ. Can, can you imagine what that's going to be like? Just, just like God promised the patriarch, so this is God's promise to you. You will stand in the presence of my glory. I don't even know what to say about that. You should know, by the way, the pronouns there in those verses are plural. He's able to keep you all. All of you. Not me, I'm not good. All of you. Keep you all from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory. All. All blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, do you see Jude is writing to a church, a church and community. He will keep all of us. He will protect all of us blameless together. You see, here's what I want you to, here's the point. In heaven, when we are proclaiming his glory, it will not be a singular voice, but we, a congregation without number, made up of all churches of all time, across all lands, with myriads upon myriads of angels, will declare the worth of the one who has done it all. There will be public celebration and public declaration. All that brings us to point two. Don't worry, points two, three, and four are less than point one. The honor ascribed to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Don't miss it. To the only 
God our Savior. There is no other God. I know what you hear out there. It's becoming more and more popular. I've said for 30 years that the number one challenge facing the evangelical church, the church of Jesus Christ, is pluralism. Just pick away. Any way we'll make it. No. Not golden calves. No idols of your own making fashioned by your own hands. No, not the God of your own making in your own mind. Not false gods of false religions. To the only God, our Savior. There's only one true and living God who alone is our Savior. Which is why back in that high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus starts with, this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God. I know the voices are out there telling you can pick your own way. There, there are many roads that lead to heaven. That's not what Jesus said. Either Jesus was the Son of God or he was a liar. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Interesting to know, most of the time in the New Testament, Jesus is called Savior. But here, it is God who is Savior, clearly referring to the Father. In fact, the Old Testament frequently calls God our Savior. The New Testament authors, however, had no qualms referring to the second person of the Trinity, that is the Son, through His cross work as our Savior. This is a further declaration of His deity. We saw in Titus chapter 1, this was absolutely stunning as well, that Paul called, called God our Savior in verse 3, and in the very next verse, verse 4, he called Jesus our Savior. So which one is it? Yes, which is why, by the way, this description of honor comes through Jesus Christ, because apart from him, we would know nothing ultimately of God. To the only God our Savior, before ascriptions of ultimate honor, first glory. What is glory? It is the magnificent display of his character and attributes that he alone possesses. The magnificent display of his character and attributes that he alone possesses. While we may possess some limited aspect of those attributes that he shares with his people and what are called communicable attributes, like love, mercy, grace, and goodness, uh, he alone possesses them infinitely, resulting in this glorious display. Remember the Shekinah glory cloud? To him alone be all the glory, the honor, the respect, the reverence, and resplendent beauty for his creative and saving work. In that sense, glory, in that sense of glory, we do not add to it, we do not take away from it. This is critically important. We don't, when the Bible says to add to God's glory, we don't add one iota of glory to God. So what does it mean? When it says, when the Bible speaks of giving God glory, it is something that we do. It speaks of making his glory and his reputation known. That's what it means. We don't add to it, we make it known. Second, the only God our Savior, to the only God our Savior be majesty. Majesty speaks of the honor due Him for His infinitely exalted, infinitely exalted position. His transcend, His trans, uh, uh, excuse me, His awesome, or dare I say, awful transcendence for who He is, that is, in His being, or what He has done, that is, in His deeds. He's majestic. Did you note that, 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 that while in the, the day that this was particularly written, they spoke of the Caesar as majestic. The New Testament only uses this word for God, who is alone, 
majestic. Third, to the only God our Savior be dominion, that is, he alone is um, uh, omnipotent, that is, all-powerful, and therefore he is sovereign, and he rules all of the heaven, all of the heavens and all of the earth, all of his creation, and even his own dwelling place. He is in control. He is, it is his dominion. Nothing happens. Listen, nothing has happened in your life without his knowledge and indeed his sovereign purpose. And he does so perfectly, fourthly, through his authority. He has the authority to exercise dominion. You see, these two words go together. It's one thing to say that you're in charge. It's another thing to have the authority to actually be in charge. And it is not just random authority. It is purposeful sovereignty. It's not fatalism. It's purposeful sovereignty. Everything that God does or allows in your life has a purpose. Piper, John Piper simply calls it providence. This brings us to our third point, the extent and duration of this honor. Jude's words are most broad of all the doxologies and descriptive. He speaks of the eternality of God before all time, that is, before the ages in eternity past, before God created time, now that is in the presence of time from creation till past creation under the umbrella of time and forever, literally to all of the ages or to eternity and beyond. That, you were supposed to catch that. That was a reference to Toy Story 2. Never mind. <laughs> to eternity and beyond. So maybe our second point would be better, the honor acknowledged rather than the honor ascribed. What's the difference? These attributes are not mutable. That is, they are not changeable. It is not like God acquired these qualities at some point or that they grew at some point. They have always been his in infinite measure and will always be his forever from before creation, in creation, and beyond creation in a world of constant change and constant flux and constant unfaithfulness Faithfulness, this is good news. This honor has always been due him and is due him now by all the creatures of our God and King. And even though many deny his existence and refuse to bow the knee, one day they will. And it will be forever due him. Which means, listen carefully, I'm almost on like a paragraph and a half left. We will forever ascribe or acknowledge the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority of God forever. One said it this way, all glory and majesty and power belong to God. He will be praised forever and ever by believers in Jesus Christ. Listen, he will be praised forever and ever by believers in Jesus Christ. Now stop. Every once in a while, I hear something like this. Heaven as an eternal worship service sounds boring. In fact, there was a ministry out in the, out in the 80s and 90s that there was a men's ministry that re really made a big deal about this. Don't tell men that they're going to be an eternal worship service that will be that's not inviting, that will be boring to them. You mean that's all that we're going to be doing in eternal church service? Listen, I do not know all that heaven holds for us. Matthew chapter 25 seems to indicate that we have in this life been granted certain responsibilities uh, and, and, and we are to be found faithful, proven faithful, which then means that we will be granted further responsibilities in the age to come. But listen, do not ever bemoan the idea that we will worship God rightly forever. 
We're going to do it because we will. Unhindered by sin, we will do that for which we were created, and it will bring us greatest, word could be translated, it, it will bring us boundless joy. See, here's our, here's our problem. We are thinking of worship in fallen bodies, which are very selfish and very self-centered, anthropocentric. Imagine worship in glorified, without blemish, blameless body and soul. It will bring you boundless joy. I'm suggesting when we get to heaven and we're singing his praises forever, when it's time to go do those responsibilities, you're going to say, oh, do I have to? To which then we can only respond, amen, which is a declaration by God's people. May it be so. It is written. It is true. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we learned over the weekend there's no better thing to do than to pray your word. I can think of no better word to pray than the, the psalms we heard, and I can think of no better psalm to pray than doxology. To him who's able to keep us from stumbling, to present us uh, in the presence uh, of his glory, blameless and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory and majesty dominion and authority before all ages in time and in every age to come and all God's people said Amen, Amen.